Today's passage is Genesis. We're going to start chapter 2, verse 25, and we're going to go through 313. Uh, says this, And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You will know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to not eat? And the man said, Woman, the woman you gave me gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. Uh, this, this passage makes me think of an event that you might have missed in 2020 because everything else was kind of on fire. But, and this is really a story about fire. And in Paris, there's this beautiful cathedral, the Notre Dame Cathedral. And it's, I remember seeing as a child, this isn't my photo, but that's the front facing of it. It took, you know, hundreds of years and all of these artists and it's really like a, a picture of just like so much beauty. You can't be in that room. Anyone go into that room back in the day? And you just get a sense of like what humanity can aspire to, to adore God. Like it's that kind of place. And for the French people, it's, it was like the picture of, of all that they were. I mean, it survived wars, it survived battles, all of these different things. But then a blink of an eye, really, after hundreds of years to make it, it burned down in a day. Here's some footage of it. Uh, they were repairing the roof and it began to burn. And it burned rapidly. Ash was like filling the air. You can think about like the whole occurrence of 9-11 and, and how much it just changed. And then there's another just incredible billowing picture. Uh, what was really profound about this moment, though, is that the French people, really in tune with, you know, being French and, and having feelings, they gathered around and they watched and they wept. Uh, they, they wept as they saw it burn to the ground. Uh, the reason that I think of that um, 
uh, with this passage is this passage makes me so sad in the same way. I think that this is often a passage we just kind of know about. Yeah, there's the snake and it talks to the Eve and then, but this is a sad passage of scripture. Uh, there's, a, there's a deep grief in it, like a deep sorrow, something that was made and it was beautiful. Like the, the verse 25 of chapter two, the man and the wife, they were both naked and they were ashamed. They were like naive, but it was like this purity of like knowing one another and not having any of the burden that we deal with. And then it was gone, like lost, beauty lost, communion lost. I mean, it happens instantly. Like it takes a couple chapters to explain how humanity and God got to this point and then a few verses and it's like, where did it go? Uh, like just a, just a line. And then they knew they were naked and they hid. Communion with God lost. And then there's just this sort of picking up of the rubble. So this morning, I just want to dive into like what actually happened? What happens here? And maybe we'll understand what's happened within us. Because that's the reason it's so sad. You know, like the Notre Dame burning up, we can, we can weep along with them because we know what it's like to lose something beautiful. Um, we're going to have to see what happens to us, what happens in our relationships, what happens in our world. It begins with, yeah, it says that the, the man and the wife, they were naked and unashamed. There's this cool thing that happens in Hebrews, the word for crafty and the word for naked is like the same word almost with just a tiny little change. So he's kind of pointing to, there, was, there were these people, they were naked, but then there was this other person who was that but evil and dark and sinister. And then there's this real temptation. The serpent says, did God really say? Did he really say? Um... Surely you won't die. On the contrary, you'll actually be like God. God's just really withholding from you. You'll be more alive. You'll have more of you. You'll, have a, you'll be better. You'll be able to be a person who can discern good and evil. You won't need to depend on God anymore. Surely he didn't say that. And if he did say that, if God did say you couldn't eat of this tree and experience this thing, then it's just because, you know, he's withholding and he doesn't want you to have this really good thing. There's wisdom, there's something better, there's a better version of you. It's also this, just this attack on the very nature of God that he, he surely isn't enough. Like what he's given you, and she says, oh, he's given us all the, the fruit and all the trees. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that. So you know that like what they were given was abundance and was beauty, and was glorious, and was wonderful. But then there's this like tiny suspicion of like, well, maybe this whole thing with God is not enough. Maybe there's something like better out there that I could achieve. I can't really depend on God. I need to take matters into my own hands. And then it uses this word that she saw that it was a delight to the eyes like a longing, as we talk about desire. She was like, I, I want this. You know, like how uh, some of us want a, a mortgage or a raise or a promotion or a 
better awards or all of these. It's like that, that kind of longing desire she has for it. And she takes it and she eats it. And it was, it was over as soon as she believed that lie. As soon as she had that desire, it was over. The whole thing. See, the view that God is withholding is the beginning of death and the end of joy. The view that God is withholding is the beginning of death and the end of all joy. See, sometimes we use this little euphemism for this passage. It actually is in my Bible, just, you know, the little bold parts above. That's like not the Bible. Just somebody trying to do their best. But sometimes we do this like thing. We call this passage the fall. Uh, like a little trip. Like I have kids, I, they fall all the time. I fall all the time. You know, like I, I fall down the stairs outside of our house all the time. The reason I wear pants is because they're all scratched up, my legs. It's like it's a little detour. You know, it's just this little thing. Humanity was walking along and this little twig got up in there and we kind of fell over. It's like calling the tragedy of Notre Dame just a little flare-up just a little flare up, no big deal. No, like we have to be real about what happens when they desire and they see that it's good and oh, maybe God is withholding and we could have something more and maybe we don't even need him at all. It's a catastrophe. It's a horror. It's rebellion against the living God who knew them and saw them and said, you're very good. It's a rebellion against that, the maker of the heaven and earth who formed them for life and for joy, but instead they've suddenly now made it a wasteland. Uh, they made themselves corpses. I mean, that's, it's not, I mean, I don't know what a better word is for it, so that's, that's why I say everyone's doing their best when they put that stuff in the bulb. Maybe you could call it the tragedy of all tragedies, the beginning of what seems like the end the breaking of all things. Uh, but next, what we see is the fallout. Uh, you know, this thing, this awful thing, sin. Uh, sin is, is something we do, it's something we believe. Uh, it's something we act upon, something we experience. Eve's sin is there's this sin of, of activity. Uh, there's a thing that she's done, right? She, she enters into this whole dialogue. She sees that it's good. She takes it. She eats it, right? There's this sin of, of doing. Uh, Adam's sin is, is real, this sin of passivity, of things not done. Things not done like, what the heck are we doing here? Why are we even contemplating this? Don't you see all the other wonderful trees? Aren't we eating of the tree of like life constantly? The sin of not doing things, things left undone that always will lead to things done. And the results of it all is shame and guilt and blame and hiding. They feel so much shame. Their eyes are open, and they knew they were naked. That thing is not bad, like knowing that you're naked. That's not like a, you know, we probably experience that at least once a day when we get in the shower, right? We know we're naked. 
There's nothing wrong with knowing that you have no clothes. What happens though, they know that they're naked and then they begin to sew and cover themselves up with cloth. Because what they, they begin to experience this profound thing that we all know way more than nakedness, which is shame. That not just like embarrassment, like I can't believe I fell, back to that, you know, bad name, but the, the shame of I am bad. Not that I have done bad things. Like Adam's not like, ooh, shoot, I should have said something. Eve's not like, ooh, whoops, shouldn't have eaten that. It's no, it's, it's this big sense of I am now unworthy and I myself am bad. And I cannot belong anymore in unhindered community. And that's what you th- see throughout the whole of scriptures. I know sometimes people get bogged down in Leviticus where it's talking about clean things and unclean things, but really what it's talking about is that, that people and humans and things can enter in this relationship with shame that excludes them with community. They have it. It's on them. They can't get away from it, and something has to be done to bring them back into community and to remove that shame. I think that shame is a real popular kind of cultural motif right now, like there's podcasts on podcasts on podcasts around toxic shame and things like that. And I think most of them are, are really good. But there's this cultural narrative that we have that if we just kind of stand up and say, hey, I have a lot of shame, then that sets us free. Like all we have to do is just tell it. Like I'm filled with shame, I'm embarrassed, I feel sad, and that's the end. And, if, and what you need is other people to be like, no big deal, Brad. And then you get to move on. But that's not how it works. And that's what we see in this passage. They know that they're, that they're naked. They feel the weight that they are sin, that they are bad. They cover themselves up and then they hide. Hiding. Hiding is this denial and this longing that nobody else will see and notice the shame that you have. Hiding is this this thing that, like, uh, hopefully nobody will know that I'm wrong. And that's horrific. But then there's also the guilt and the weight and the burden of it. Of, I can't believe what we did. Let's hide. And then as God comes, they're afraid. They don't want to, to be seen and to be known that way. They're horrified. And see, this is how it's like so different than just like they ate some pomegranate or some apple or something. And that like God just needs to come and say, no big deal. If God comes and says, no big deal, they're still exactly where they are, overwhelmed with that. As God comes and they they become seen or heard, they begin to blame. Uh, They're not responsible anymore, you know? They begin to build a narrative that kind of gets them out of it, gets them the implications of their actions. You know, they're not, they're not on me anymore. And you see this all the time, like on the playground with children, for example, you see a kid like shove another kid really hard. They're on the ground and they're like, they're bleeding and, you know, all that stuff. Maybe just my kids. But then parents come over and they're like, what happened? And the kid who shoved the other kids like, you don't understand. He didn't give me a goldfish. Because I have a reason, therefore I'm not implicated. We see this all the time, like 
He called me a mean name, so I hit him. I can't be in trouble. He started it. We, we blow up at work or we lie on our taxes or we mislead other people and we withdraw from relationship. We do all of these things. We say, but you don't understand. Like they did it first or they did something to me. This is one of the big breakthroughs in our marriage where we would be fighting and what we'd really be doing is trying to come down to the person who first messed up because then that person has to own it all. It's like, yeah, I said that, but first you said this. Oh, well, yeah, I did say that, but first you did this action. Well, the only reason I did that action is because of this. And what we're doing is we're trying to find out what is the reason that isn't me? I wouldn't have said those mean things to you if you hadn't first done this. If you had met my needs, I wouldn't have looked elsewhere. God, if you would have answered my prayers and made my life easier, I would not have. What we want God to do is to come and say, you know what? Excuse accepted. You know? I mean, imagine that kind of story. God comes, he goes, you know what? You're right. It was Eve. You know, I shouldn't have given you her. My bad. The one that I formed and made that would be a perfect helper for you so that you could thrive in the garden and actually do the thing that I commanded all humans to do. My bad. You're right. It's my fault, not yours, Adam. The reason we want God to accept all of those things is because our view of him is he's some sort of hall monitor or some like assistant principal. No offense, Sarah, from your past career. (laughs) It's okay. Now that you said that, you're all good. Because we think that God is just like looking around for people who are skipping class and don't have a note. And if he can somehow buy our excuse, then it'll all be good. And so that is the broken fallout reality. And the fact is, is that if you hide, if you're denying, if you're running away from your own implication by blaming other people, and you know and you feel that I am myself bad, wicked, awful, embarrassed, there is no relationship. There is no like cultivating and subduing the earth and being fruitful and multiplying and thriving and living at peace. There is no peace. So you think, well, how will God respond? Is he going to be angry, wrathful? Is he going to come and throw a tantrum, like a cosmic tantrum? Is he going to be apathetic? Is he going to come and be like, I don't even care? Is he going to ignore? Is he going to ignore them? Is he going to ignore every reality about what just happened? You know, maybe you've experienced that kind of uh, family or relationship or work environment where something really bad happens, but then everybody just kind of moseys on along like nothing ever, you know, and you're just kind of pretending because you want to have peace and you want to have a good Christmas dinner. But the truth is there is no real peace. There is no real, it's all fake. Is God going to do that? Is God going to abandon you, abandon them? Is he going to come and just be like, all right, starting over, with this other planet, these people far away? Is he going to disregard? Is he going to smite them? 
you know, like waves of fire, right? Because Eve believed, like if she even touched the tree, she was going to die. What's he going to do? You know, these are all kind of like common themes and views of God, both then, like in the ancient world and now. You know, in the ancient world, gods would ravage the soul, like come and torture humans. That was their idea of them. They would possess them. They would turn up the screws. Um, And that was, I think, that can be our view of God too. That God's going to come and like either hurt us or withhold himself from us. And I think that's kind of ironic. Like the, the temptation to abandon God is our opinions that he's not like bringing him, his full self to us. Like our temptation, our temptation, the root of them is God is withholding. And then our biggest fear with God is that now he's gonna be even more withholding. It's pretty ironic. Um, and then that puts us in this deeper cycle of, so now I'm gonna sin more because God's withholding and because he withheld himself for me. And now I've got to keep on sinning and I'm going to punish myself that way. But this is what God actually does. He comes to them walking in the garden in the cool of the day, moving towards them, looking for them in this golden hour of the day. And this is just a little aside, um, a small bit of like rhythmic advice for your life. Um, God made the sunset and he made the evening and he made that time of day where everything is just gold and beautiful and wonderful. Like when you can make really good movies, right? Like that's why we're all here or the city is here, right? Because there's this time where it's just beautiful and wonderful. It's the best time to go on a date. It's the best time to like relax. It's the best time to play a sport. You know what I'm talking about, right? Golden hour. Yeah, some of y'all have little kids and you're calling it the witching hour, but it's the golden hour. Long before that, in the brokenness of the fall, it was the golden hour. And we get to live in this world where it glows with beauty every evening. And that's when God comes to find and to seek after them. And so my little advice is notice the sunset each day. Look at it as a daily rhythm. It's a daily sign, a daily remembrance that God pursues you in all your shame, all your guilt, all your burden. All the sin that you've done that day, he comes for you. All that you've experienced and the sin done to you, he comes for you. All the lies that you've heard, all the lies that you believed, that the sun sets this like rhythm of like, that's when God, God's coming for you. Remember that. God still joyfully pursues you. It's not the time of day to post cool Instagram photos. It's a sign that God pursues humanity in, that, in the cool of the day. And he pursues in any time of the day, but it's a, it's a picture, it's a remembrance of the story. That's a, like a, a key clue that's put here in the passage. In your sin, God pursues you. And he pursues a dialogue with Adam and Eve and with your heart. And he asks three key questions that are so contrary to all of our views of God as the hall monitor or God as the the fire and brimstone person. He comes and he asks these questions to be listened to in this hour. He comes to Adam and he's looking for them and he says, where are you? Where are you? It's not like a, you know, they're playing hide and go seek and God doesn't know where he is. 
You know, it's like he's made this whole world, this whole universe. He's made this whole garden. Can't be that big. Is God really wandering around like, hey, where are you? I thought we were going to play. It's like, no, he, he knows where they are, but he's asking them, where are you? Because when we sin, we're completely lost and we lose all touch. We're untethered. Um, it's like we lose and we're lost grip, like with the group, with society itself. It's this part of the Hobbit where they're all running through the dark caves under the mountain and Frodo's supposed to be holding on to one of the dwarfs, right? And then he loses touch and he gets pushed in this corner and he finds himself completely alone in the dark talking to Gollum, right? Battling for his own life. That's what happens. But it's not a location question that, Jesus, that God is asking. He's asking, where are you with your soul, your emotions, your heart? Where did you go? Because we were together just not long ago. Where are you now? Where did you go? And that's what the Spirit's conviction actually looks like. Not waves and waves of shame and guilt, but it's, hey, Brad, what's going on with you? Where did you go? Where are we? Because God wants to pursue Adam. And then Adam's just like, oh, we're naked. We don't, you know, we're ashamed. And then God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you this? Who, who put all of that on you? Who put shame all surrounding you? See, God comes to us and says, where are you? And then he asks, who told you? Kind of calling out, like, don't you know my voice compared to those other voices? So like if you're like battling in these cycles and cycles of shame and guilt and hiding and not wanting to be seen and not wanting to be implicated, God comes to you and says, who told you all of these things? Those aren't my words of life that created you and brought you out of the dust. Who told you this? And then he asks, did you do this to Adam? Did you, act, did you eat that? And to Eve, what did you do? You know, didn't he know? Again, it's like, is it playing hide-go-seek? I don't think he's playing hide-go-seek. I don't think he's a hall monitor trying to figure out if you're cutting class. I think what he's trying to do is not just draw out where you are and who told you lies, but he's also trying to draw out from deep within you a confession and an acknowledgement. He's drawing them out of the bushes into the light, not to devour them, but though, that they can engage only through this acknowledgement, only through some sort of confession. We're so used to pretending and letting relationship exist in silence and brokenness. But the father knows that the children have erred and messed up, you know? Uh, it's like a, a wife knows when their husband is out of touch and out of reach. And yet we pretend. But the father goes and says, I'm going to bring you out of the bushes. And the only way that that can happen is if we all stop pretending that we're just playing this game in the garden. Only if you come out and you say, I ate. I thought that it was good. I wanted, it was delightful to the eye. And I thought you were withholding and I wanted to go somewhere else. And God's like, tell me about it. Not so that he can destroy you and crush you, 
but so that he can set you free. God cares too much to pretend. Did this happen? Did you do this? Not so he can know, but so that you can come back with him. So I wonder, it's like, can we listen and respond to a God who pursues that way? Can we be a people that doesn't come up with wonderful euphemisms like, I'm just a broken person, I messed up, I, you know, I'm weak, or, you know, it was a hard week and I was really tired and therefore... Or can we be people who hear the voice of God saying, where are you? Who told you this? What did you do? Jesus died at about four o'clock in the afternoon. I guess, like, cool of the day. Wonderful, beautiful time of the day. Uh, God never, you know, misses moments of creative narrative brilliance. You know, that's what we're always looking for in the movies that we can't find. Uh, it's like, oh, we really, oh, but it's, it's God never misses that. He never misses a moment for beauty or for power. So Jesus is dying at the cool of the day. Uh, and everything goes dark instead of beautiful. Sky is like purple and like bruised a bruised sky. Josh will talk about that next week, sorry. And then he, go, he gets taken off of it in the evening and he gets put into a, a grave. It's just a corpse, like the corpse Jesus. Uh, we don't usually have statues of that. It's pretty uninspiring, but that's what he is. He's laid in the grave right before sundown, right when Sabbath begins, in the cool of the day, in the evening. It's a beautiful, powerful moment because Jesus came for the shame that we all know about, that began on that day. He came for that shame. He came for the guilt that, that riddles us. He came for the death that comes from that. He came for all the blame that we throw around to other people, that we heap on ourselves all the time. And he pursued all of it to the death. And he took all of it on himself, took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the burdens, and he was buried. It's a pretty profound thing because it's like, oh, can't God just come and be like, no big deal. Instead, what he does is he comes and he says, okay, I will take all the blame. You can play the blame game forever and for all time. And I, this is God's perspective in Jesus. Okay, I will take the blame. I will take the suffering, I will take the sin, I'll take all the shame that you're experiencing, I'll take all the hiding that you have. And he is buried, but then he is raised. The things of Adam, the things of Eve are put into a grave. And then out of the garden, he comes out alive. Having purchased, having secured an abundant life for us. Mary comes in and is like, you know, she's looking for Jesus in the garden. It's pretty amazing. And he's looking for her. See, Eve brought sin into the world by what she had done. And Jesus ends sin by what he has done. 
Adam's brought sin into the world by what he left undone. And then Jesus in the silence of a tomb is undoing the undone stuff of Adam. He's undoing the shame, the guilt, the blame. And so families, church, return to God. Repent and believe that this is what's true and what's right about who you are, about who God is. Uh, Thomas Watson, no relation, uh, Puritan preacher, he said this, because I think the return is frightening. Like, we were like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. It sounds terrifying. People are going to know I'm a sinner? Fam, we already know, right? Just like, like, isn't it going to be costly? Isn't it going to be burdensome? Isn't it going to be terrible? Just like Christian and Pilgrim's progress of like, ah, oh, but the burden, it will hurt so much when the burden comes off. This is what Thomas Watson says about it. He says, upon turning to God, we have more restored to us than in Christ than what was ever lost in Adam. Like that's a found truth that what we taste and experience in returning to Christ is more than Adam ever experienced in the garden that was ever lost. It's like when they rebuild the cathedral of Notre Dame, that it will be more magnificent, more beautiful than anything that was burned and took down. But he goes on, sorry. It says, God says to the repenting soul, I will clothe you. Instead of nakedness, I will clothe you with the robe of righteousness. He's gonna, God's saying, I'm gonna dress you up, not with shame, but with like a holy pride that I am well. Instead of thinking I am bad, you're gonna think I am good because the clothes prove it. And then is I will enrich you with jewels and graces of my spirit. I will bestow my love upon you. I will give you a kingdom. God will say, son, all I have is yours. That's what returning feels like, that God secured. And so while this is the story of the origin of sorrow and sin and death, we get to live in this reality where, where God has already conquered those things and what's offered to us are riches that Adam and Eve could never fathom. Like, what a wonderful thing. That's joy. Can't get joy pretending something else. This is joy. So return. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that we, uh, like you would start something with us. Um, that we would be a repentant, delightfully repentant people. I even just now think about that word of delight and that Eve looked at it and wanted it. God, that we would be a people that look at repentance and salvation with that same hunger and delight. Uh, break our hearts, but mend them. Uh, bring us to the end of ourselves, but then also the beginning of new life. Jesus, thank you for bearing all of the stuff of Adam and securing for us something far greater yeah, Spirit, please continue to do your work among us in this way. Amen.